Hey everybody, welcome to West Seattle Christian Church Online. My name is Worth. If you are new, welcome and thanks for joining us. If not, welcome back and we're going to dive right in this week. But first, just one piece of news. Save the date for our next in-person worship gathering on Sunday, September 26th, right here on our campus in our worship center, which is our big gym building just south of our chapel if you're new. We're right here in West Seattle. It's in four weeks. Never been here before. We're literally just a block away, two-minute walk from the West Seattle Farmer's Market and 30-second walk just east from Hotwire Coffee, which is, I mean, that's great. Hotwire Coffee, in-person worship, and then head to the market. Not a bad idea. Did I mention that we have parking? All right, we'll see you then. Onward. So the passage we're focusing on today is going to tie back into where we've been before in this series. So I recommend you check those out and you can start by tapping the card right here and then work forward through the next two uh, uh, teachings till you get to the one today. The passage today is about Joseph and his story began with these dreams that he had when he was 17 and then 13 years later when he's 30 years old he's freed from prison. 13 years and then there were seven, seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. So 30 years plus 14 years he's like 44 years roughly. I say roughly because we don't know exactly how many years into the famine that Joseph's brothers come and visit him in Egypt. But let's say it's maybe just a few years into the famine, and so maybe he's somewhere between 39 and 42 years old. Where would you be if God gave you a dream when you were 17 and he didn't fulfill it until you were 42, like 25 years of waiting? Would you have given up? Would you have bailed up on that? We can pretty much surmise that Joseph didn't think the fulfillment of those dreams would happen the way that they did with him going to prison and all that. That he was going to have to get through being sold into slavery and then falsely accused and all of that stuff. And the question is, if that were you or me, would we have endured holding out for that long? So I want you to have that question in mind as we jump into the text. We're going to start in Genesis 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So I want you to notice in verse 4 that Jacob is called Jacob. We've talked about this before. He's called Jacob instead of Israel. And this goes back a few weeks ago where we talked about how the author switches back and forth between calling him Jacob and calling him Israel. And possibly that's because when he's doing something his own way, working his own angle, the author then calls him Jacob. And when he's called Israel, he's living in the new identity that God has given him. So here he's called Jacob. So we can expect some kind of dysfunctional family stuff. Like, hey guys, I don't really care if you bite the dust, but Benjamin, he's staying with me, and the rest of you, be gone. So, verse 6. Now, Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all, sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Dream fulfilled right here, just like the beginning of the story. Verse 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Now, 
This is a bit interesting here. Rabbi Foreman, in his commentary about this, calls this the lullaby effect, where we read a story, and because we've read this story before, we read it with the end in mind. Like, you know the answer, and so we're kind of get lured into the sense of, I got this figured out, I know where the story's going. But what I want you to do is pretend that you don't know the end of this story. You don't know how it's gonna turn out. And then, ask yourself this question. Does it at all seem remotely possible like Joseph is ever going to reveal himself to his brothers? No, it does not. The question then is, what changes his mind? In verses 7 through 15, there's this conversation where Joseph accuses them of being spies. But then they say, they're honest men. But I want you to remember that he knows who they are and what they've done to him in the past, even though they don't know who he is at this point. And they say who they are, and they reveal that they are all brothers, and they have one more brother back in Canaan. And so Joseph repeats, no, you're spies. And then in verse 15, he says this, By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. So they've said they're being honest, but he is calling their bluff. He is making them prove their honesty by having them get their younger brother. So in verse 16, he says, Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Which, if you've read this before, again, you read the, you probably know the ending, but you probably forgot the part where he chucked them all in, in jail for three days. And it's basically like they're not even able to respond. So after the three days, he lets them out. And he says, one of you will remain here while the rest can take some grain back to Canaan and go get the younger brother to, to prove this test. Verse 21, and then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress, distress has come upon us. I want to stop here for a second because who are they referring to here? They are talking about what they did to Joseph when they say that. They are conscious of the reason that this problem is happening to them. It's because of what they did to Joseph. It's kind of true, but not in the way they think. This isn't God going, hey, I'm going to make you pay over and over and over again to these guys. What this is, is Joseph going, I don't know if I can trust you guys or not. Now think about it. When someone betrays you or hurts you in some way and you don't get it resolved right away, what happens? You have a, a, a lot of years to think and stew on it and develop all kinds of beliefs about it. And you have to kind of connect these dots in your mind about the things that you don't know about that person. Like, why did they do this? And what about that? And all of a sudden, this person becomes an object in your mind because in order to justify why it's okay for you to be angry at them, you have to objectify them. So we've talked about how Judah objectified Joseph to get him sold into slavery. And because he does that, he then invites Joseph to objectify his family. Does that make sense? Because where we speak from is where we invite people to. When I live a life that objectifies the people around me, I in turn invite them to objectify me. The only way to fix this issue of feeling objectified is to refuse to objectify others. And that's the drama and the reality of this story. And so Joseph is looking at these guys thinking deeply and truly that these guys are dishonest, they are evil. Why? Because he's had over 25 years to stew on it, to marinate in it, to replay the scenario in his mind. And every time something else bad happened to him, Guess who he is blaming? His brothers and his father too. So here's a question for you in your life. 
the people in your life who have hurt you or betrayed you? Are they all good? Or are they all bad? Yeah. You see what we do? We, we paint the picture of the whole person with the little bitty piece that we have. Psychologists call this transference. It's super dysfunctional. Solomon in the Bible, for example, is he all good or is he all bad? And the answer is yes or no or both. King David, all good or all bad? Abraham, good or bad? Yes. The apostles Peter and Paul, all good or all bad? Yeah. And what do we do? We, we try to make the people who wound us all bad. Why? Because if I make them all bad, then I get to justify my anger. I am angry because you're bad, right? Really, it's this. I'm angry at you because I'm hurt. And if I don't get that right, then I can never be set free from it. As long as I choose to make you pay for the way you wounded me, I'm the one who continues to pay. And this is what is going on in this story. And Joseph's like, am I going to love you or not? No, you guys ruined my life. It was not supposed to be this way and it's your fault. And he's not playing a game here. He's like, not only am I going to kill you, I'm going to make you suffer along the way. I mean, he's being calculating about exacting pain from them. And so he's going to put them to the, to the test to prove that they are still the same people that threw him in the pit. He needs them and wants them to be those same people so that he can justify what he wants to do to them next. But the problem is that they aren't going to respond the way that he expects them to. Check it out. Verse 22, and Reuben answered them, did I not tell you? not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for this blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them for there was an interpreter between them. And then he turned away from them and wept. Wait, what? Why, why is he crying? Because I think it's because he sees for the first time that they're conflicted about what they did to him all those years ago. Maybe they're not. He's thinking, maybe they're not the sociopaths I thought they were. What the heck? Now what do I do with this? So he's struggling really hard right now because of all the anger and sorrow in his gut that he's used to define himself for so long, for 25 years. And that's hard to just turn off like the flick of a switch. And, and, and so he returned to them and he spoke to them and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes, the text says. Verse 25, and Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. So he puts their money back in their sacks and they don't know that, but they get home and they discover something. Verse 26, then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my money's been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? Verse 35, And as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. Their hearts failed them, of course, because when you betray one of the most powerful leaders in, in, in one of the most powerful countries of the world, what's going to happen to you? That's what they're thinking. Verse 36, says, and Jacob, their father said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. So he's basically just writing Simeon off. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. And then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. 
But he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. He's the only, so he's basically like, Benjamin's the only one left. I'm, how do you think that statement made the other 10 brothers feel? Benjamin's the only one that counts. I mean, basically, Jacob is acting like the steward of Gondor in The Lord of the Rings. I don't know if you remember this scene at all in The Return of the King. He loves Boromir, and he basically treats Faramir like he doesn't exist. You wish now that our places had been exchanged. That I had died and Boromir had lived. Yes. So, it goes on in the text to say, If harm should happen to him on that journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. So the idea is, they want to go back and get Simeon, and Jacob says, no way. He's dead, I don't care. Joseph's dead, and now Simeon's dead. If you take Benjamin, my life's over. Well, some time passes, and they eat all the grain that, that was sent back with them. And then we pick it up in Genesis chapter 43. Now, it says this, Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, and we hinted at this a couple weeks ago, but I'm going to just stop for, here for a minute. But why does Judah, it says Judah said to him, why does Judah pop up in the story right now? Well, because Judah is the one, he's going to be the one who's the catalyst for this really great reunion that's going to happen. Why? Because of the courage of someone, Tamar. Well, continuing on, it says, But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we'll go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with us. And then in verse 6, it says, Israel, and I want you to notice that name change. Now he's going to do something good. Israel said, why do you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? And they replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. So like, how could we dream up what questions we were going to be asked? Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel's father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. Now this right here is super important and I want to review it. Reuben said, Reuben, not Judah. Reuben said, if we go and Benjamin dies, you can kill my two sons. And now Judah says, if we go and something happens to Benjamin... I will be the one that takes the punishment. Judah has come a long way from when he was objectifying people, hasn't he? Somewhere along the way, Judah grew up. He got some things figured out. And by the way, his life from here on forward is going to be defined by these kinds of moments, these good moments, rather than his biggest mistake. And that's really good news for you and me, for those of us who've made some really ginormous mistakes, right? I mean, wouldn't it be awesome if your life wasn't defined by your biggest mistake? I mean, maybe there's hope. So he says, For my hand you shall require him. If you do not bring him back to you, and if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. So so Judah says here, if I don't bring him back, I'll take the shame for this. And in an honor-based culture like this, it's huge. It's way easier to die than to live with the shame. Seems like that hasn't changed much over the centuries. Moving on to verse 11, And then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. A little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. 
carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. So Jacob makes them be honest with the money. That's a good thing. He says, be honest with this. And he says, take it back. And here's the deal. You just know that Joseph is hoping that they, that they won't bring it back. Because if they don't, then he can feel justified in his revenge and his anger. But if you read the next several passages, what happens is this. Joseph's brothers go back to Egypt and they are taken directly to Joseph's house with Benjamin, the youngest brother, and they give back to Joseph the money that he snuck in there to make them try and be honest and see if they're going to be virtuous or not. They didn't know it was in there. And you know that Joseph just wanted so badly to have them not bring it back. You can just feel it if you haven't read this before. And he's like, dang it, they did the right thing. Maybe there is some good in him, but I don't want to believe it, you know. Now they move on to Joseph's house in uh, uh, chapter 43, verse 26. And he asks them about their dad. And when he sees his little brother, Benjamin, the text says he can't stand it. He has to leave. And this is super interesting. He sees his younger brother and all of a sudden his heart starts to melt. He wants to be angry, but he can't. And he doesn't know what to do. And so he gets all emotional and he can't control it. And he just leaves and he cries and he cries. Healing is hard, isn't it? And it says that they drank and were merry with him. And so they have this meal together when he comes back in. And then it comes time for them to head back with their grain to Canaan. And then we pick it back up in Genesis 44, where it says, Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Again, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. And so they start their journey back to Israel, but Joseph sends guards to go after them and, and discover the money there in their sacks and catch them all again. And, in and his personal cup is in Benjamin's sack. So in other words, he set it up to look like Benjamin stole something from his house. And so the one thing that they told their dad would never happen, that, that, that nothing's going to happen to Benjamin, it's happening. And so the guards bring the brothers back after they leave, and we pick it up in verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Which is basically Egyptian for, you didn't think I'd figure this out? Of course he'd figure it out because he's just playing this part with them and he did this to them. Verse 16, and Judah, Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak or how can we clear ourselves? To which again, we should be asking, why is Judah speaking? Because Judah is not the behor. He's not the firstborn who's going to be taking over the head of the family eventually. Why is he speaking? Well, he's speaking because... He, he put his shame on the line, his honor on the line. Remember, he's not going to let Reuben get in there and wreck it for him and bring shame down on him. So he's taking matters into his own hands. God has found out the guilt of your servants, he said. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose, in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. So what we read there is that Joseph is doing this. Like he's like, look, the rest of you didn't do anything wrong, but, but, uh, and you can get out of here. Just get out of here. You can go. The one who stole my cup, he's going to be my slave. And then we get to verse 18. And the Judah went up to him and said, and that in Hebrew, he just went up to him and said, that's a terrible translation. In, in Hebrew, it says he drew near. It's the word karva. The idea here is that Judah comes up to Joseph and he hugs him closely and he 
He whispers in his ear. Judah is having this passionate, vulnerable, kind of exposed conversation. He doesn't want anybody else to be a part of it. He's kind of whispering. Why does he do this? I think it's because he has figured out what it means to finally value other people, which is why he told his dad that he would take his place if anything happened. So watch what he says next. He says, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant. For you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead. He's talking about Joseph there. And he alone is left of his mother's children. That's Benjamin. And his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when, we are, and when our father said, Go again and buy us a little food, we said, We can't go down. We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes, goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me. He's talking about Joseph. And I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. And that right there, that's the very, very first time that Joseph realizes that his father was not involved in what happened to him. And it changes everything for him. Verse 29. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father. So he's saying, I'm going to stand in his place if anything happens to him, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. You see what Jude is doing? He is not working any angle here. He is not saying, Here, take one of my kids instead, or a servant, or a slave, you know, instead of Benjamin. He's like, Listen, I will take Benjamin's shame. I will own it. I will stand in his place is amazing and it sounds an awful lot like Jesus and all of a sudden you start to understand why Judah becomes known as the lion the lion of Judah because somewhere in his own personal journey Judah figures out that he didn't have to stay broken he didn't have to remain messed up he didn't have to wallow in the belief that he was the sum total of his worst mistakes that he could always be what God intended him to be just like Joseph and yeah it was a mess getting him there and Tamar had a really messed up, whacked out story that got Judah there, but it worked. And so for those of you who are watching out there, who cares how God brought you to this place where you know that he cares and loves you? What matters is that you're here and you know that. You know how deeply God loves you. And if you don't know that, he does love you. And the question is, what do we do with that? Well, Judah, Judah, it, it, takes, it, says, it says he'll take the place of Benjamin. It's not just in taking his place as a servant in the place of Benjamin so that Benjamin can go back to his dad. But he's also taking Benjamin's shame as a thief because remember, as far as Judah knows, Benjamin did steal that silver cup. And so he's like, I, I'm going to be labeled a thief. And I want you to see what happens to Joseph when he sees Judah this way. 
Judah, the one who blew it and orchestrated the beginning of all the trouble in Joseph's life. What happens when Joseph sees Judah humble himself and act, finally act like a complete, whole, caring human being? Turn with me to Genesis 45. Then Joseph could not control himself. Before all those who stood by him, he cried, Make everyone get out, get out of here away from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. You think? Because if you're reading this story for the first time, it has never looked at any moment like Joseph ever had the intention of revealing himself to his brothers and telling them who he was. What changed his heart? What changed his mind? It's that moment that Judah got real and transparent and started treating people like people, even at the own expense of his own future and of his own life and of his own reputation and his own honor. He treated people like people. And that, my friends, is how the kingdom of God is supposed to function. You can't treat people like objects. Whether, right, whether they're right or wrong, in or out, good or bad, they are not all good or all bad. They're not. We're humans created with tremendous potential, scarred and marred by an attitude called sin. And it gets in the way of who we are to be, but we are not defined by the sum total of our mistakes. You can be whole. And that has all kinds of implications for our life. Consider this kind of outlook when we understand people are not all good or all bad. Take that lens of looking at people as people and take a look at your relationships, your relationships at work, with your family, your marriage. Apply it to people on the other side of the aisle with politics, with your friends. For real though, if you want to stay bitter at your friends or somebody with a different political view or your spouse, you must objectify them. And in so doing, you begin to resent all the things that they are not rather than celebrating the things that they are. What if we did this with our children? I mean, seriously, just had an incident where my kids were like freezing ice blocks and chucking them off the balcony, only they forgot the car was down there and they just dented it. They're human beings with incredibly limited experience. Therefore, they will make foolish decisions. And in every moment, ideas seem like good ones. How in the world are they going to see if a decision is good or bad with the kind of foresight that you and I have? They're kids. I mean, what if rather than beating them up over the poor choices that they make, we can sit down with them and work out the truth of who they are and how the decisions they're making can get in the way of that truth? You, are, you will never be everything God intended you to be, is what you should say to them, when you live outside of his purview. So why would you settle for second rate? Why, son, daughter, why would you settle for having that baggage in your life? In other words, it's not about laying down the law with your kids until they submit to your will and do what, you're, do what they're told, but helping, it's more about helping them take care of them, take hold of a better reality, a more complete whole reality. What if we were willing to not make judgments as parents or grandparents? Well, when you made this poor decision, child, it's going to reflect poorly on me and therefore you're going to pay for it for making me look bad. No. What I want us to see in this section of scripture is that God's purposes for you cannot be taken away. They are irrevocable. They will be fulfilled. And that when we make mistakes, we don't have to be defined by those mistakes. We have the capacity to move forward and to grow and get stronger and get better and to improve. And then when that same situation where you failed in the past pops up down the road, you can do the right thing. You can do that. And we need to do that as a community, as a church. 
not of perfect people, but a community of people who are committed to moving forward and not letting each other stay stuck. Now, if we were meeting together right now in person, we'd be moving towards the Lord's table. And I'd be telling you that we have an open table here at West Seattle Christian. What that means is that anybody who's willing to celebrate the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to partake. And that's why we put that section at the end of our videos where you can uh, have communion in your home. And we ask you to hold those to the end and take them together if we were in person. Um, and what I would be doing if we were in person is asking you to work through some implications with me about all the stuff that we've just talked about. And the first one of those would be, God will fulfill his purpose in you because you can't run from it. You can try to fight it. You can try to deny it. And, you can, and I can guarantee you that it won't look the way you thought it was going to look. Joseph's purpose in life didn't look the way he thought it was going to look. The next implication is that people and circumstances will seem to get in your way. I mean, that's just... I think you know that deep down. Listen, all of us, if we're honest, we don't have to look very deep to understand that we have passions and dreams and hopes and aspirations for this world and our life in it. Many of those are God-given because the Bible says when you pray, the Lord will give you the desires of your heart. And that doesn't mean he's going to give you whatever you want, but it means he's going to put the desires of his heart in you. So when you're praying and walking with the Lord and you have a desire, it may very well be his desire for you, but you need to discern that and usually talk to others about that. I mean, having money, is not it's not a problem. Being a Christian is not a vow of poverty, but use your money for kingdom purposes. Everything is going to seem like it's working against you, people, situations. And for many of us, we had a dream or a passion or a calling and somehow little by little, whether it's through circumstances or people saying things, we begin to think, I can't be the thing that I always wanted to be. With all the love in my heart, let me just tell you that I think that is just a ton of crap. Please hear my heart in that. It is a lie. that You can't become the thing that God made you for? That's a lie from Satan. And, and every day, you get to choose whether or not you're going to listen and buy into that reality or if you're going to listen and buy into God's reality for your life. If God put it in your heart, you can do it with his help. The last implication is this. Judah's ability to grow, it allows his family to be reunited. It allows his brother to realize his destiny. It allows his dad to smile again. Listen, do you understand that the shining star of this story is not Joseph? It's Judah. Judah is the catalyst that reunites the whole thing. And next week, we're going to see a really powerful story of forgiveness that all started with Judah. But really, truly, it began with a Canaanite woman named Tamar. And all of a sudden... When all these things are linked up, it's not just this isolated incident. It's not just Joseph's story, but it's this larger story that has ripple effects for generations to come. If we were having communion together right now, I would tell you that I love coming to this time because the bread and the juice that represent the body of Christ, it shows us that there is no place that you've gone to. It doesn't matter how, doesn't matter how bad you've blown it. it. doesn't matter what shame you carry. There is no place that Jesus won't go to tell you and to show you how much he loves you. This moment where we have these elements, where we say the words of institution that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he took the juice and he and drank it after the supper and he said, this is my body broken for you and this is my blood shed for you. He's saying, I, I will take your place. I will take your shame. I will stand and take the punishment for you. I, I love you that much. 
I love you that much and there's nowhere I wouldn't go, no distance I wouldn't travel, no, there's nothing. There's nothing he wouldn't do to show you that. So with that in mind, would you pray with me? Lord, we want to say thank you for your compassion. Thank you for the fact that we're not stuck in our mistakes. Thank you for examples of guys like Judah who grew, they changed, they became better, they got refined, they were sanctified. Lord, thank you also for Joseph's capacity to forgive and how, and how that inspires us to deal with the hard, hurt places in our lives. We ask through your Holy Spirit to give us the courage to go there. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.